Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joseph Nye, to many people, has defined our international relations. His book, Power and Interdependence with Mr. Keohane, is a classic. But far more importantly is his new, shorter effort, Is the American Century Over? Professor Nye, wonderful to have you with us uh, this morning. Is it going to be Nice to be with you. Oh, wonderful to have you. Is it going to be a Trump century, or is Donald Trump a one-off in our politics? Well, that's one of the big questions. Is he going to tear up uh, 70 years of building a system that we've seen since 1945, or is he going to wind up reinforcing it? And at this stage, it's, it's, uh, it's an open question. Too soon to tell. Tell me within your classic textbook where the judicial branch fits in. Is there a power and is there an independence of an American judicial branch? Well, there is. And that's one of the reasons that some people who are alarmists and say, oh, you know, Trump is like Mussolini. My answer to that is no, uh, not at all, because the United States is not like Italy in 1922. We have separation of powers and a strong independent judicial branch. And we just saw it this past weekend with the uh, well, past week with the executive order. Uh, so the United States has the benefit of a long tradition of strong institutions. Professor Nice, speak to Bloomberg's global audience right now as they look at an America in turmoil. Is it another part of our history, say the election of 1800 and Adams and Jefferson? Or is there should there be real concern about the stability of America as the dominant institution? I still think the United States is a pretty robust society with pretty strong institutions. Uh, Think back to the 1960s when you had rioting in the streets, a set of assassinations, uh, deep bitterness over both civil rights and the Vietnam War. Uh, We're not in that kind of a situation today. We're in better shape despite our differences. But, Professor, how much will Donald Trump, your president, actually test these institutions? You talk about checks and balances. How far will he go in trying to challenge them? Well, I think if Trump were to uh, challenge the institutions in a serious way, as opposed to uh, with tweets, uh, which is what we've seen where he tweeted against a judge who came down on a decision against him, But if he were to do something more serious than that, I think there'd be resistance, not just in the Congress, but also uh, in the rest of the judiciary and in civil society. So I think that uh, he can indeed make life difficult for judges, but I don't think that uh, he's in a position to corrupt or undermine the independence of the judiciary. Uh, Professor, a lot of people were surprised with the rhetoric coming from President Trump in the last couple of weeks since his inauguration. Do you believe that actually what you see is what you get? He's so far uh, just held very close to what he said in the campaign trail. He'll build a wall. He's talking about a wall. He said he'll ban immigration. That's what he's done. And so can we actually take his campaign and say that will be his first 100 days in power? Well, certainly, uh, President Uh, Donald Trump has tried to demonstrate to his uh, followers that uh, his base uh, supporters that he is doing what he said. And that explains the executive orders, some of which were hasty and poorly thought through, as in the immigration order, uh, and a lot of others which are primarily symbolic. Uh, in the sense that we don't know how they're going to work out. But he's wanted to use executive orders and tweets 
to show his base that he is carrying out what he said. And that's important to him because, remember, he was elected by a minority. He's, and he's got to energize that minority. Mm -hmm. And so rather than moving to the center, as let's say George W. Bush did after a close election in 2000, Trump has uh, re-energized his base or tried to do that. Professor Nye, it was quite a moment last night when we saw President George Herbert Walker Bush and Mrs. Bush come out at the Super Bowl to toss at the coin. That was a different time and place. Help me here with our less civilized discourse, this clash that we have, to borrow from Huntington, this clash that we have of less civilized discourse. How do we get back to nigh normality? Well, that's a, it's a great question. I mean, certainly... Uh, Bush 41 was a, I think, a period where we had a, a very strong foreign policy and a very civil discourse. And uh, I think that uh, technology has hurt this somewhat in the sense that in 140 characters, people can uh, be quite right. rude. And the uh, rhetoric of the uh, 2016 campaign was pretty rough. Uh, the question is whether politicians will find it in their advantage to keep that way or whether the people will say, you know, we'd like to hear a little bit more listening, a little bit more politeness. Uh, so we, it's it's possible that the pendulum will swing back. On the other hand, technology is not in our favor. Professor, what is your prescription for the new newly minted Secretary of State, Mr. Tillerson? How should he act given the executiveness of the White House in its first two weeks? Well, as I said on your program a couple of months ago, Tom, I, I think the Tillerson appointment is a good one. He knows uh, uh, what he's doing. He knows the world. Uh, he is going to have to uh, deal with a White House, which uh, likes to act quickly, sometimes without uh, carefully worked out consultations. And there is a long tradition of some tension between the State Department and the White House national security staff. Uh, member Ronald Reagan uh, ran through uh, uh, six NSC advisors. So I would expect we'll see a bit of friction there. I think the key for Tillerson is to keep a steady course on his own. What about the friction within the GOP? Will the party, um, you know, stay around and actually make sure that Donald Trump is in check or will they rally behind him no matter what happens? Well, I think in the short run, uh, facing re-elections in uh, 2018, a lot of the people who were critical of Donald Trump in 2016 are reluctant to abandon him. They think that they're going to be better off in their re-election if they stick with him. On the other hand, if part of what Donald Trump and Steve Bannon are doing is to try to organize a new populist party by appealing to the uh, Tea Party Republicans and the so-called Reagan Democrats, then a lot of the middle-of-the-road Republicans or con moderate conservative Republicans uh, are going to feel that pressure. So the next two years is going to see a, a good deal of tension just under the surface. And, Professor, what are the chances of a real trade war between the U.S. and China this year? Well, I hope that uh, calm voices will prevail. A trade war uh, would be expensive for China, but it would be expensive for the United States as well. And if you're trying to provide jobs, it's worth remembering that our exports also provide jobs. So I think that it's a bad idea, but if you ask me to place a bet on will there be some, I would expect right. there will be some. Professor Nye, the speed of events right now is unthinkable for anybody of any generation, but one feature here was the president's discussion with Mr. O'Reilly over at Fox News, where he showed a great affection for Russia and for Mr. Putin, Mr. O'Reilly called Mr. Putin, I believe, a killer. But far more important is this idea, is America so innocent? Explain to us how a president speaks of the innocent or guilt of America and our history. Well, I was surprised by President Trump's remarks. First of all, 
I think it uh, was Vice President Pence who said, uh, or somebody on the administration said, no, I guess it was Mitch McConnell who said that, that remember that uh, Trump is ex-KGB, and this guy is pretty much of a thug in terms of what he's done uh, to his neighbors in Ukraine, Georgia, and elsewhere. And uh, yes, you can dredge up things from American history where some of our behavior uh, has not been uh, exemplary. But it's surprising to see a president uh, talk that way, particularly at a time when we're going to have to and he is going to have to deal with Putin to try to prevent Putin from doing what he did, which was invade his neighbor Ukraine and interfere in the American elections. It's great to have you with us. And there is so much indeed uh, to talk about. Let me start with Secretary Mattis's trip uh, to Asia, the first member of President Trump's cabinet to embark on a trip to the region. He went to South Korea and to Tokyo. Talk a bit about the importance of that trip, what he set out to do there and what we've learned about the contours of Donald Trump's foreign policy from that trip that Secretary Mattis made. Well, I thought Mattis uh, did the said all the right things, did the right thing. He reassured uh, our allies, Japan and South Korea, that we were with them through thick or thin. And that had been challenged uh, during the campaign by uh, candidate Trump. Uh, in that sense, uh, the stability of our alliances with Japan and South Korea are crucial to managing the rise of China and creating stability in the region. So I'd say that uh, Mattis's trip was a uh, home run. Professor Nye, there was a, a rather robust dialogue, I would say, between the U.S. and China under President Obama. There were uh, annual uh, strategic and economic dialogues, a lot of trips back and forth, good good connections at the state level, at the in the Treasury Department level. Do you expect that's going to continue here? What's the, the argument for continuing that level of coordination and communication that we saw during the last administration? Well, uh, China is the second largest economy in the world. Uh, they're also the largest uh, uh, polluter of the of the climate. And uh, what they do as a rising power matters a lot to stability in the region and in the world. So in that sense, constant contact, uh, the ability to uh, talk to each other, to try to resolve issues is, uh, is important. And I think that... Uh, uh, if President Trump is going to be successful in his East Asia policy, he's not only going to have to reaffirm the alliances uh, that Mattis just did, he's also going to figure out or has will have to figure out how to uh, discuss the char- problems with China. What is the international relations tension between cabinet officers and White House. If I assume, and I don't mean back to the 19th century, say Jefferson and how he figured out to buy the Louisiana Purchase, but post-World War II, as Dulles and Truman and others developed our modern foreign policy and our defense policy, Forrestal is one example there. What's different now? And does Mr. Trump, does President Trump have a case for a large amount of executive authority? Well, executive authority, yes, but the question of how you distribute it between the White House and the other branches uh, of the executive department has varied. If you look at uh, situations like uh, uh, Eisenhower's administration, uh, there were good relations between the White House and the State Department. Uh, Carter's administration, there were tense relations between uh, Secretary of State Cy Vance and uh, uh, National Security Advisor Big Brzezinski. In the Reagan administration, you had two secretaries of state, and uh, and they uh, ran through six national security advisors. Probably one of the best administrations was uh, George H.W. Bush, where you had quite good relations between the White House and the State Department. The problem is that you have a tension between state and um, the White House, and a successful president learns how to manage that. Uh, It's too early at this stage to see whether uh, uh, National Security Advisor Mike Flynn and uh, new Secretary of State uh, Rick Tillerson are going to work this out successfully or not. Are you at all concerned about the degree to which the NSC, the National Security Advisor, has more power? And that's not just uh, in this administration. We certainly saw it with Ambassador Susan Rice during the Obama administration uh, as well. Has there been a greater consolidation of power within the White House when it comes to national security policy? Uh, Yes, and I think the National Security Council has gotten a bit too large. Um, 
uh, a group that Brent Scowcroft and I co-chaired called the Aspen Strategy Group uh, brought out a report uh, which said that the NSC, which had grown to a size of nearly 400 uh, personnel, ought to be cut in about half. Um, And that if you have an NSC that's too large, it becomes a little shadow uh, foreign ministry sitting in the White House. And that's a bad way to run a government. There was so much talk at the end of President Obama's tenure of the Obama Doctrine, uh, a a, a sort of summary of, of his foreign policy. How long does it take before a president in the White House comes up with or crafts a foreign policy like a doctrine of his own, I guess you would say? Well, I think there's a danger that uh, that we look for doctrines when, uh, uh, when in fact, uh, we're superimposing a view on, uh, on an administration. I mean, Obama did say he was going to pivot to Asia away from the Middle East, but, and I guess you can call that an Obama doctrine. On the other hand, uh, if you ask uh, what really is an Obama doctrine, it's pretty hard to pin it down. I think there's a danger of looking too hard mm-hmm. for a doctrine as opposed to saying, did you do a good job on uh, on having a set of foreign policy decisions? Uh, Professor, um, I've been quoting Vinod Agarwal of Berkeley a lot recently, and what he's done to me over the years is folded game theory into our study of the complexities of international uh, relations. What is the game theory that President Trump needs to be aware of? He likes to speak, I think we can all say, in certitudes, moving to a simple message. That really pushes against game theory, doesn't it? Well, uh, one of the problems with is that Trump tends to think in a, almost entirely in terms of zero-sum games in which uh, my loss is your gain and vice versa. But there's some areas of international politics which can be positive some games. For example, uh, trade, uh, if it's done correctly, uh, can make us both better off. And climate change, uh, we benefit if China gets better at controlling uh, the uh, its coal industries and pollutants because that uh, uh, pollutants that they're spewing that CO2 they're spewing in the atmosphere hurts them, but it hurts us too. So there's some positive, some aspects. And Obama, to his credit, I think, on that area, uh, placed a lot of emphasis on the positive sum game of things where we and China could both be better off if we reached agreements. Rex Tillerson, the new Secretary of State, is in his second week on the job. What advice do you have for him as he begins to sort of carve out his position within uh, that department, makes a, makes a name for himself in, in the long history of the State Department? What's your advice in these early days? Well, he's got a, a, a good department, a lot of good people. Uh, he's got to find a way to uh, set a course. I would argue that uh, maintaining alliances, uh, NATO, in the in the European set, uh, sense and uh, the U.S.-Japan alliance, particularly in Asia, but also the alliances with uh, Korea, Australia, and others, this gives a solid bedrock for American diplomacy. One of the interesting mm-hmm. things is if you compare the number of countries allied to the United States and the number allied to China, uh, we're about 60 allies. China has about one or two. And uh, that gives us a lot of leverage for our diplomacy. And he's got to remember that. We continue the discussion with Professor Nye of Harvard. Joseph Nye, there is a relationship of America and Russia. I think we all know it is different and odd now. An hour ago or so on Bloomberg Television, you were kind enough to identify Mr. Putin as a thug. How does the United States speak to a thug? Well, alas, you have to do business with thugs in international relations. That's the way the world is. Um, uh, But you speak to him carefully, uh, carefully in the sense that you're uh, very uh, uh, mistrustful of what you're going to hear. Uh, on the other hand, you know you have to do business with them uh, because there are things where our interests intersect, including nuclear weapons. And, uh, as, you know, I think Ronald Reagan had a great phrase for how to deal with the, with the uh, uh, Soviets then, the predecessors 
to the Russians uh, of today. He said, um, uh, trust but verify. In other words, you got to work with them, but um, don't, don't take it just on trust. What do you think the, the approach is going to be? What, what's the next interaction going to be between this administration and uh, Vladimir Putin's? Well, I hope that uh, that uh, Trump will, uh, President Trump will uh, say to President Putin, uh, you want relief on sanctions, you stop messing about in Ukraine, uh, pull back there, get a stable relationship, work with Angela Merkel of Germany to get the mince process, as they call it, uh, uh, going uh, properly. Uh, a and B, uh, part of the sanctions against you are related to your messing around in American elections. And we want to see some evidence from you that you're not going to do that again. So we have things to discuss that could lead to reduction in the intensity of the sanctions that are now applied against you. But you're going to have to change your behavior. Uh, There was a phone call between President Trump and Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, over the weekend, and I was struck by a line in the readout from that that the White House gave us. It said, the parties discussed the potential for a peaceful resolution to the conflict along the Ukrainian border. Uh, A a curious uh, uh, wording there, a curious uh, uh, sense of of, of what that conflict is. What do you make of that? Well, I think that uh, uh, Stoltenberg is trying to keep the uh, NATO alliance together, which is understandable. But I think the key is that uh, uh, Russia has got to drop this idea that using uh, covert proxies, the so-called little green men or the the uh, Ukrainian dissidents, uh, that they can continue to disrupt Ukraine to force Ukraine to do what uh, Russia wants. And I think that uh, we've got to make it clear to them that that's not going to work. There has been so much talk about reforming the United Nations. I, I think back to a couple of administrations ago, Ambassador John Bolton set to New York. He was going to make big reforms. Now we have Nikki Haley, the new uh, ambassador to the UN, saying the same thing. The president saying that uh, as well. How much reform has there actually been of the United Nations? And, and uh, are, are you in agreement that some things about that, that institution need to change? Well, obviously, there are large bureaucratic problems in the UN. And uh, I think that's what uh, uh, some administrations, including the Obama administration, tried to uh, do something about uh, at the Bush administration before it. There's also a question of reforming the Security Council, which now represents five states that were victors at the end of World War II. And there have been various proposals to add uh, another half a dozen states, or sometimes people say four states, uh, like India, Brazil, and so forth. Uh, to make it more representative. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. Uh, There are too many rivalries to get the uh, majority Mm -hmm. that you need for that. What, with your knowledge of our diplomacy, and for that matter, I guess one volume you could read at the Kennedy School is Kissinger's uh, Diplomacy. How should diplomatic pros respond to President Trump? And to be direct, how do the grizzled uh, everyday bureaucrats at Foggy Bottom uh, react to this unique president? Well, I think their reaction so far has been wait and see. In other words, how much of what he has uh, uh, threatened in the campaign and some of his early tweets, uh, how much of that is efforts to oppose and posture to improve his bargaining power? For example, uh, uh, you know, we will uh, uh, reduce our support for NATO. Uh, unless the European countries put in a higher portion of their GDP in their defense budgets. Well, if that leads to a tough bargaining on defense budgets, uh, that's a good thing. If, on the other hand, it weakens confidence in NATO and thereby uh, encourages Putin to take greater risks, that's a bad thing. I think the diplomats are waiting to see which of those is the attitude or the real attitude of the administration. In just about a week, the Prime Minister of Israel is going to take a trip to the United States to meet with uh, President Trump. Uh, and I wonder sort of what you make of, of their relationship thus far, uh, especially with uh, regard to the matter of settlements. It seems like Donald Trump has gone back and forth here on this, changed his tune a bit. Uh, the White House saying it's not issued an official statement. Uh, oh, they said that in, a, in, in an official statement from the, the White House press secretary about settlements going forward. How clear is administration policy toward Israel and what's going to be at the top of the agenda when those two men meet in Washington? Well, that's a, that's a great question, because this is one area where uh, the Trump administration 
uh, in its early days at least, seems to have parted uh, from the campaign. Um, and uh, we won't know until Trump and, and Netanyahu meet uh, how serious this is. Certainly if Trump has aspirations, as the press accounts have put it, that his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, will uh, try to mediate or make some progress on uh, uh, a Palestinian-Israeli uh, uh, peace process, uh, he's got to do something about the settlements or otherwise they lock into concrete things that then uh, make mm -hmm. the negotiations impossible. How urgent, and you know, I, I think of President Obama in his speech in Berlin and the acclaim that he got. How urgent is it that President Trump get on Air Force One and proverbially show the flag? I think the a president who uh, visits other countries has a powerful effect, and I think that uh, uh, we will see some of that travel from from President. Uh, Trump. It also gives the president yeah. a better sense of reality if when you go out and you look at the facts on the ground, so to speak. So uh, I hope that he will indeed realize that yeah. that kind of travel is, is useful in both directions. Professor, thank you so much for your generous time this morning. We greatly appreciate it. Professor Nye with us on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Kamal Srikumar, the president of Srikumar Global Strategies, joins us here in New York. Did you make it up for the whole game? Did you watch the entirety? Well, I have to say... David, that I stayed awake through half time, and uh -huh. I said, "Oh, the Falcons are going to win, and I'm going. To, I, this is the end." But how wrong I was! <laughs> Very good. I, you know, Tom, I'm struck. There's a, there's something in literary criticism called objective correlative, uh, and it's when the the mood when the when the environment mirrors the mood of the game. I'm looking at these two front pages here, dueling front pages, and they have the weather at the top. In Atlanta today, chance of showers. Uh, in Boston, they say it's in the win winning afterglow. The weather today. <laughs> Let me start with the jobs numbers. I was off Friday, of course, watched as those numbers came in. How did you process what you saw in those uh, those Labor Department reports uh, on Friday? What did they tell you about the state of the, the economy today, Sri? Yeah, David, uh, you have 227,000 jobs, which is very positive. But I think everything else gave you left you with a lot of questions. One is the wage increase was much slower than had been anticipated. The U6 unemployment rate, which I consider to be the proper measure of unemployment rate, not the more you often use U3, that rose by 2.2 uh, percentage points. Then you have still the participation rate, even though it went up, it is still below 63%. And last night I was busy writing up on the jobs report and I said, if you think that happened because of the upgrading of America and the participation rate is lower than it was before the financial crisis, because of the older population, take a look at those who are 25 to 54 years old. And that is also two percentage points mm. lower than we were at, before the recession. So if you look at all those job numbers, David, you get an idea of what led to the Donald Trump victory, why there was a populist sur upsurge in terms of support, because you see that as the elites think that the jobs numbers are very good and they are looking for, the, as a benefit of nine years of uh, economic policy, that is not what you get in terms mm. of reality. And I think that is where the message is from the jobs report. So that's the message looking back, telling you what happened, perhaps why uh, what happened did happen. How does it influence what you do going forward when you look at those numbers? What does it tell you about the economy going forward? That's a great question. I think among the inferences you take are, number one, if you are going to have wage increases not uh, being significant on the first side and that the people are willing to accept a lower wage rate in order to keep their job and the average work week in January 2017 compared with January 2016 is lower. So you're working fewer hours per week. 
And even when your average hourly earnings increase, you don't take home too much of extra pay because you're working less. Putting it all together, the first lesson I take is that inflation is not on the upsurge. And if that were the case, I cannot see a case for the 10-year uh, bond yield rising either. And everybody assumes that that is going to be the case. That is not happening. So that's the first one. Second, you have the Federal Reserve, which again says they are going to raise interest rates three times, and inflation is going to rise to the 2% level. I say hope springs eternal. You keep talking about it all the time. The Fed's forecasts have been wrong since 2009. They are going to be wrong again. And there is no room for a three hike uh, on the interest rates this time. That would be the second major one. Third one is that the administration needs to be very careful in terms of the steps that it is taking in 2017. Because if you have trade restrictions in a Trump administration, and that slows global and U.S. economic growth significantly, we are looking at a very difficult situation on the economy. Do you see an administration that's reckoning with that now, an administration and a, and a legislature that's reckoning with both of those uh, things when it comes to trade policy, when it comes to the prospects for uh, a stimulus package? Uh, are things moving as fast as you might have anticipated they would have moved after the election? I think the, uh, the steps are moving somewhat slowly. Uh, for instance, I wrote for Bloomberg about 10 days ago about how the Trump measures taken and the challenge that President Trump is facing and dealing with on the Mexican side may be just a prelude to what he might do with China. So the answer to your question is, on the trade front, the president is clearly going more slowly than you would have thought based on the campaign rhetoric, which is probably good because you do not want to take, take on China on your step one. Mexico is a much easier target to take up and if it that doesn't work, then you can mm -hmm. go on to China. Shri, what would you like to see from President Trump? Um, I think on the on the trade side, uh, we talked about going slow. I would uh, like to see the president go, I think, explain the reasons for some of the measures, probably be much more gradual in terms of the trade restrictions. And the other part, Tom, is that you've been talking on TV as well earlier today in terms of the supply chain, mm -hmm. and we are hearing about the supply chain, the, uh, again, disruptions that may happen to the UK in terms of Brexit. You can have supply chain uh, disruptions happen from trade restrictions. You have effects which you did not anticipate because some other part of the economy gets uh, affected. This is, again, Tom, for you and me interested in economic theory, what Vasily Leontief used to do in the 1930s and 40s, writing about the input-output model and yeah. how various parts interact. Well, and I think I would, I would uh, uh, caution more care here. But this is brilliant. I mean, Leontief was an era of harnessing complexity, of taking immense complexity within a modern system and trying to distill it down to aggregate simple models. The president is starting from, except, you know, whatever anybody thinks about him, exceptionally simplistic beliefs. How will they impinge upon the complexity of the American economy? I think it is going to be a trial and error process. You're absolutely right. I think the president starts from a simplistic viewpoint. But I think next they are going to face the more the complexities of the supply chain and the disruptions and you asked me what I would advise, and my hope would be that as this goes on, he is more careful in the next steps that he takes, and that, I think, would benefit both the U.S. economy as well as the global markets. Let me ask you about what we've seen over the last week. Uh, the president signing an executive order on Dodd-Frank, another order on the fiduciary rule, imposing some new sanctions on, on Iran. What do those things tell you about um, his approach to regulation and his approach to uh, sanctioning, something that the, the, the Jack Lew Treasury Department did a lot of. What you see is, again, uh, talking about reducing regulations, restrictions on the domestic economy, and at the same time, increasing regulations and restrictions on the international yeah. trade. So the thing that is very striking f about this, David, for me, is that there is a different divergent path between the domestic economy and the external economy that the president has been taking and the administration has been taking. I think the steps that he's taking with respect to the domestic economy are well-founded. 
again, I'm not going to go into Dodd-Frank's very specifically Sorry. because you probably need some form of restrictions. I am against financial institutions using insured bank deposits in order to go gamble with it, if you would. And that is what happened in 2006, 2007. You don't want a repeat of that. But the banks clearly need fewer restrictions in terms of yeah. being able to grow competitively. Mm. So having done that externally, also, you need to be more careful. You cannot have restrictions. So I'm much more of a free trader uh -huh. movement toward free markets. Sri Kumar with us, uh, with too many things to talk about. Help me, help me here, Sri, with flyover America. So much of the mythology of the Super Bowl and the tensions of the ads and just the whole backdrop is this tension between urban America, the coasts, and flyover America. It's valid. How will that play out within our economic growth in the next few years? I think um, that's, a, I think, a very timely question, Tom, because you see the the some the the three coastal states, if you would, which voted the wrong side of the two uh, the 2016 elections, namely California, New York, Massachusetts, are all very important states. And the other thing is, before coming on your program, I was looking at the contribution, for instance, that a coastal state like California makes to the federal budget in the 2014 fiscal year. The, U the U.S. government had a total IRS tax revenue of $3.2 trillion, of which $361 billion, or more than 10%, came from just from the state of California. So in terms of the new administration dealing with the states which did not vote for them, uh, one needs to be very careful. So the flyover states, the middle America, clearly the Rust Belt, Went for, went for Donald Trump. But on the other hand, you have these coastal states which did not, which are economically more important. So you have, I think, Tom, the reason I like your question is because you have this big divergence between the political importance and the economic importance of the two types of states. We're seeing this, this uh, divergence here uh, between French and German bond yields. Uh, had the speech from Marine Le Pen over the, the weekend. Uh, you're monitoring what's going on in Europe, in France, in the Netherlands, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, what do you do going forward from all of that? In other words, how are you, you changing your positioning or thinking about uh, the markets in, in relation to what we've heard from uh, French politicians recently? You can hear more today. Uh, David, I'm very cautious on overall the European outlook in 2017. You have elections coming up in four major countries, three large ones and one somewhat smaller one. We begin with Netherlands next month. Uh, Italy will probably happen in April. And France is April and May, first round and second round. And then you have Germany in September, October. So any one of them, or maybe more than one of them, could go with the far uh, extreme party winning, which means the non-Euro or the anti-Euro party succeeding. And Marine Le Pen... Uh, is very significant to me for the, this following reason. This is not 2002 when her father, uh, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, lost to uh, President Jacques Chirac in the 2002 elections. And it was very clear that even people who did not like Mr. Chirac voted for him because they did not want to see the National Front uh, come to the office. But 2017 is very different. Mm. What um, uh, Ms. Le Pen stands for is becoming more closer to the mainstream in 2017 than was the case in 2002, which is why I think there is more of a risk. So if you have the five-star movement succeeding in Italy in April or Marine Le Pen winning uh, in uh, April, May, then you're going to see that affect also the thinking in Germany, which is, going to, which is going to be the last country to have elections in 2017. And again, there, is no, there seems to be no give. There is no explanation of which way that is going to go. So the answer to your question, what would I do, is if you are looking purely at country risk, you want to be very cautious until this wave passes because there is no forecasting which way it's going to go. 
as of now, we all thought a few months ago that uh, in Francois Fillon on the right was going to be the winner yeah. uh, in the first round and that he would carry yeah. through to the second round. But again, you see that uh, Marine Le Pen may come back. So well, it's tough to say which way it's going to go. Sri, thank you so much. Really wonderful on a Monday to get started with you. And of course, I'm going to call it a more towards an outlier call now of tepid GDP for the United States. And very importantly, as three mentioned when we were uh, in a break, Mr. Gross, and we heard this, David, last week from Bill Gross, um, really tilting towards a Sri Kumar-like view. Mm. I mean, Bill was solidly away from the 3% or better Trump reflation economy. And you see that in his, his note this morning. His note out, his, his monthly note out. And um, what did he say about the jobs reports? Remind us what his, his uh, reaction to those was. On He, like Sri, looked at wages and just said, look, here it is. The numbers are pretty good, but the wages aren't, aren't there. And you see that, you know, I guess you see it. Uh, in the struggler retail, the Trump, uh, the Tiffany CEO, yes. uh, out this morning as well. David Gurr and Tom Keane, getting your Monday started worldwide, coast to coast. This is Bloomberg. He was not surprised that St. Thomas pulled it out because he's been watching the Minnesota Vikings. All season attempt miracles. Jim Paulson joins us from Wells Capital. Manager. Good morning, Tom. Was that a good game or what, Jim Paulson? I mean, that's what it's about, huh? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was a cliffhanger. That was uh, kind of unbelievable, but, yeah. but it was very entertaining. Some would say that about this great bull market. How unloved is this bull market right now? <laughs> well, that's been a, a a mainstay of this entire bull run, Tom. I, I think you know. I think it's best illustrated. I think the stock market's up maybe close to three and a half fold from its lows in March of '09, and yet, if you would have bought the most defensive sectors, the most defensive investments at the beginning of this bull market, you would have bought. Just said, I'm scared, but I'm going to be in. I'm going to buy the largest cap companies. I'm going to stay with American companies, and I'm going to buy just low vol consumer stocks and bond surrogates like utilities. You would have dominated this bull nothing but defensive investments. And that, I think, is testament to what you're saying, is that normally having a three-and-a-half-time bull market, you think it'd be led by all the aggressive, high-beta-octane stuff, but it hasn't, and it reflects the fact that this has been a fear-based bull. You've been looking at the stock market's yield buffer. What, what does that tell you right now when you look at that? <laughs> well, you know, rates are, rates are moving north. I, I, I do think, I think the 30-year bull in bonds is... Is ended, and uh, you know that's a that, that's a tough one, just because you could uh, say that several times over the last thirty years. Yeah. But um, I do think we've we're kind of turned a corner of that being at full employment, uh, you know, and continuing this recovery now and putting uh, pressure just globally. All rates are coming up, and I think if you're in fixed income, you got to still be in there. Everyone is uh, diversified and got to own some, but I think you got to look for yield buffers, whether that's looking at credit spreads to put some additional yield on your fixed income portfolio or with structure or how you position on the curve. Um, you may also want to look at tip bonds that uh, protect you a little bit from inflation, which uh, with inflation expectations continue to climb, uh, tip bonds, I think, will continue to do well. But um, one's going to have to uh, put some protection in that bond portfolio because I think there's still quite a bit of risk there. Are we, Jim Paulson, at a point of stability and we're control of shorter-term expectations? Or do you dovetail the politics of the moment, bring it over to investment, and say we are most susceptible to some forms of disappointment? <laughs> it's an awful volatile political situation. I'm not sure I remember another one quite like this. But yeah. um, I'm not sure, Tom, what you can do about that. I, I think you ought to approach the political VIX, if you will, with diversification, like you would any other black swan event, the potential for an earthquake or the potential things you can't predict. And, and keep your portfolio focus on the economic and earnings fundamentals. And quite frankly, to me, that's the wind under President Trump's magic carpet, is as long as there's 
uh, accelerating and broadening economic and earnings momentum. Uh, I think he can do and say whatever, and this market's going to be Teflon against it. If that economic and market or earnings momentum fades, that's when the markets would, would get into trouble. Right now, best thing he has going for him is, you know, the GDP now number for the first quarter, I think, here in the United States is 3.4%. We're coming off another pretty good earnings quarter. The global uh, positive surprise indices are some of their highest levels of the recovery, saying this is a, you know, broader participatory recovery than ever before. That That's what's really driving these markets. I think, I think it's less about uh, Trump tweets than it is about better fundamentals. Do you, what are the signs that you see that that economic and earnings momentum is going to continue? Here we are in earnings season now. Uh, does yeah. it seem likely to you that it's going to continue, that that wind is going to be beneath that carpet for a while longer yet? I, I do, David. I, I guess the, the thing that I've been uh, writing about here over the last year, year and a half, is I think what we, what's really different is for the first time over the last 18 months or so, we, we synchronize global economic policies. Up until about 18 months ago, we, we never got all policies from Europe and Japan and China and the United States on the same page. You know, Europe practiced fiscal austerity and put them back into recession. China was trying to slow themselves down. You know, now what we got is everyone has adopted Ben Bernanke stimulus. And when you think you've eased enough, ease some more. Everyone's adopted, you know, zero negative yields, massive yeah. central bank balance. And the result of that from a lagged point, lag standpoint, is it's creating one of the first synchronized global bounces of the recovery. And since no one's really turned against that yet, I think it's going to continue. Jim Paulson with us with a, a dose of optimism there. Interesting after what we heard from Sri. Come on. Um, Jim, I'm looking at the Bloomberg screen, and I believe in the last 12 months, the S&P 500 is up 22.2%. The grand canard of the pro markets the last few years has been single-digit actuarial assumptions. How do you respond to someone who says, okay, we were wrong. We've had massive double-digit returns. We're going to get killed. How do you respond to that? <laughs> well, um, those of us living in glass houses, you got to be careful throwing stones. Because, uh, um, you know, I, I've had my share of those misses as well. Um, yeah, I, I just think, I think the biggest thing uh, is it, it can get into timing the – year-in, year-out moves. But I think if I'm an investor, the biggest question I got right now is when's the next recession? Mm -hmm. And if you think the next recession's inside two years, that's one thing. But if you think we might not have one for, you know, three to five years, then then I think you ought not worry about exactly what the number will be this year. But probably if, if it's going to last that long, you're, there's still some decent returns from stocks over the balance of this recovery. And what's your thinking there in terms of when we might see when we're due for one? I guess if you look at cycles, this is it. Yeah, it's a calendar old recovery. There's no doubt about it. We're we're going to very quickly become the second oldest recovery in U.S. history here, but um, I just still think it's very character young. We just started using leverage debt a couple of years ago, really. In this in this recovery, we've got really strong balance sheets, uh, aggregately at least in the corporate, household, and banking industry uh, overall. We just have never had the excessive uh, confidence-driven sort of over-the-top behaviors. There has never been a capital spending cycle. There's never been a real housing cycle. There's never been a public rush into risk on equities in a in a in a big way. Um, there just hasn't been the confidence, which typically leads to behaviors that ultimately bring recession. I I think that we're we're going to have uh, go, uh, we're in the longest recovery in U.S. history. It's going to go past the old record by multiple years. And I think um, we're going to be surprised of the, the third leg, maybe, of this bull market yet. The, the final leg may finally be more confident-driven, but with confident investment and confident uh, economic behaviors. And we may just be getting into that. Uh, a little while ago, we were talking about political volatility. You talked about the political uh, VIX. How about the actual VIX? What's that telling you right now when you look at it at you know, 11.8, 12? Yeah. Pretty, I forget, a pretty low pretty, level. Yeah, It's pretty low. It's, uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all to have a hiccup at some point that jumps back up to 20. You know, we did that, you know, we did it in the November. We did it last summer. You know, that, that certainly is probably going to happen at some point. I don't think I'm going to be able to predict that, David, but I, I think it, uh, we don't. That said, 
Um, you know, we've had some marvelous historic uh, market movements with very low VIX levels. So uh, certainly the, the risk of a spike in VIX, and if it does spike, that'll probably be a pullback in the markets. But you've also had prolonged periods where the VIX remains pretty low and the market does very well. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily get bearish on that alone. How about regulation? We had those executive orders last week. Uh, did you need to see those to, to believe that we're going to see real regulatory reform? Where are we in that process, do you think, of, of maybe scaling back some of the regulations on financial institutions? You know, of all the things that uh, you know Donald Trump's thrown out, they're going to do, or the Republican Party in general, I think regulations is probably the easiest one to get done. And I think that's probably the, the one that will get done uh, the most broadly and the most. Um, the second might be, you know, some tax relief of some form. I think mm -hmm. beyond that, I don't have high expectations that much else is really going to be accomplished. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of the movement that we're seeing is based primarily on the idea that uh, regulatory relief has already started and probably more of that's going to come. When I, uh, when I look, uh, at Jim Paulson, at the place of bonds here, and there's one way, higher yields, lower prices, lower yields, higher prices. But what do you do with your bond allocation within a retirement account? I mean, are you on the efficient frontier, or does that not work given our great distortion? <laughs> you know, Tom, I think it's a great question. Um, I think that investors uh, need to move away from sort of the, the yield rule. In other words, you, you know, a lot of a lot of the retirees will set up. Well, I need this much income, so I'm going to, you know, get a five percent yield or whatever it is off my portfolio. And I think you got to move away from that. With yields at ridiculously low levels, probably unsustainably low, they've been artificially pegged the world over, and the peg is coming off. I think you you got to move away from some kind of yield expectation towards just more in line with what foundations have done forever, have a spending rule and, and not be yeah. forced to just buy yieldy investments. Because I think if, if you're looking just for yield, it's going to take you into what might be one of the greatest risk areas of the, of the financial markets over the next few years. If you stay away from that and just say, I need 5% spending rule, I don't care if I get that mm -hmm. from dividend flow, coupon flow, or capital gain. Right. I think that's a better way to go to keep you more in a, in a risk-adverse position. Jim Paulson, thank you um, so much. Uh, some caution there from somebody who uh, really has a real belief in the investment and capitalism of the nation. Uh, Jim Paulson and Wells uh, Asset Management. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.